It's a road trip today. I am up and back to Somerset. Lots of driving, but going to be highly worth it. I'm in a place called Kilver Court to meet none other than Roger Saul, the founder of Mulberry. And I can't wait to talk to him about that and his family farm, Shapham Park. It's just going to be incredible. I have so many fond memories of Mulberry because it's that sort of personal milestone moments when you got that Mulberry wallet or something for your birthday. I'm sure we can all relate to it. It's going to be incredible. It's an iconic British brand and I know we're going to learn so much. It's going to be an honour. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. I'm the founder of Not On The High Street and Holly & Co. And I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses. I believe that having a business, doing what you love, is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everybody start theirs. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs, and those who just simply inspire me, and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor, NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown What an honour it is to meet you. The man behind a modern-day iconic brand. It's so funny, as I thought Mulberry had been around for hundreds of years. But I think that's testament to the breathtaking business that you created. And it's a beautiful, timeless brand. So thank you so much for your time today, Roger. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I would love to start with a little bit about your backstory, if I may. You were born around here in Somerset. What was life like growing up? Well, my father had come down after the war to join Clark's. He was an army officer, as was my mother. And there was some sort of Clark's management trainee system taking in service people. So I was born 1950, and just straight after the war, I guess, and probably quite quite, um, not straightened times, but nobody was doing anything in excess because they hadn't, nobody had had any money or, yeah. or goods, if you like, for a yes. long time. So we grew up, but I knew no different. So it's a different period, to, obviously, today and, and times thereafter. But it, we were in a rural location. I was born in Lottisham, which is only probably three miles from where we're sitting. Little cottage, and my father worked incredibly hard, so you'd hardly see him because he'd be off manufacturing for Clark's. We then moved to Midsummer Norton, and his factory was right next door. But from an early age, I was used to... I mean, I think the car park was above the house, and the factory was below it, so you had hundreds of people <laughs> coming out and collecting their bicycles behind. Oh, yeah. So no cars, it was just a big bike shed where they all parked their bikes. So as a little child, we used to climb the trees, perhaps throw the odd apple out at them and just see what happened to get a reaction. So buzz of manufacturing around us, lots of people... My parents were incredibly supportive, four children, so um, we were a very close family. Um, and then by the age of 11, I was sent off to boarding school, which I sort of loved the idea of, but when I got there, it was terrifying. And that experience, though, in, in hugely cold and drafty, the ice on the inside of the, of the dormitories, um, you grew up pretty quickly, and you had to be imagine. self-sufficient. And that definitively was good for me in mind, body and soul as I've grown older because you, you are prepared to put yourself, if you like, at risk or in situations where you're not going to be in control but you've got to find a way to be in control and a way to plan your way through, through those it. circumstances and or be right up against risk and know, OK, well, which way am I going to go? What were you like at school? What were your subjects that you gravitated towards? Well, I was pretty good academically... As a small boy, probably up to 11, but the blackboard duster did whistle past my head occasionally if I had started to daydream. Um, by the time I got to big school, let's say 11 plus, here I am a boarder, again, the daydreaming came in and there was definitely a sort of, oh, you know, where was I? Um, I certainly probably wasn't in the classroom mentally <laughs> sometimes. Um, I loved history. I loved art. Um, I was quite good at English. I was pretty hopeless at maths, but actually, even if I say so myself now, I can outperform any of my financial team in 
looking at balance sheets and P&Ls and finding the, the weak link on margin or product, or whatever it might be, and I can count in my head without a calculator super fast. So there must have been something good in there, but it yes. just does just demonstrate again that I didn't quite concentrate <laughs> enough. So daydream through early school years. Sport came on the horizon, and I just love running, love rugby, love all sort of sports. So um, I was Somerset 400-metre champion. I ran in the nationals. I was school athletics captain, rugby captain, played for Bath. Um, so all of those things were far more interesting nice. than than being academic. Um, I definitely could have... It could have helped an awful lot if I had concentrated more on my lessons because going off into Europe in, in young Mulberry days, you know, there I was in Paris or Milan or wherever it might be, and my French and my German and my Italian, they were all there, but they weren't mature. <laughs> yes. like. So, But they were good enough for me then to learn and know that speaking those languages was critical if you wanted to go beyond that first step. You realise that if you really wanted to benefit from those relationships, you must speak Italian or German or French. And actually you get far more respect from those friends or colleagues or, or business people you're meeting if they know that you've tried to reach out to them. So I do now speak all those languages and I enjoy it. And, but a little bit more hard work at the time would have been good. Your father, as you said, worked... Um within the famous Clark's shoe factories. What would you say that influence had on you? Do you feel that there was an entrepreneurial spirit there or the work ethic that rubbed off onto yourself? Work ethic, without question. He would head off at eight o'clock and actually he would drive me to catch the bus um, before I, I was aboard and then became a day boy later. And it was... We'd probably have to get the bus at eight o'clock and we'd probably get to the bus stop at five past eight. That meant we spent the rest of probably half an hour trying to catch up the bus and overtake it, get me to a bus stop so I could get on. <laughs> bus drivers, you could see them sort of, oh, God, it's him again. Here, here we go again. He was always late, always late because he was trying to get too much in, but boy, did he get a lot in. So... The work ethic was huge. Clark's of those days, he was making 60,000 pairs of shoes a week. Um, children's shoes, the leather was... incredible? Yeah, when you think about it. Um, manufacture nothing now and haven't for years. He was known as one of the best team managers in Clark's, so he was always on the front end of technology, as was then, and getting people to adapt to it and, and move forward with change. So I think those are the elements I learned from him. From my mother, she was a mother bringing up four children. She'd been an army officer. She'd been a top PA to De La Rue in London. So she was very clear and precise and sharp, good financially. So if you like, their two work ethics and standards, their standards were incredibly high. You had to behave correctly and perfectly. And that would have come out of probably their army officer background where in the military... That's what you did. But I suspect my parents were good examples of it, if you like. Yeah. And it, it must have been an excellent influence as you went on to have your own market stall at Portobello Market growing up, where you sold to the Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix, of all people. Um, tell us about that time, because it must have been a hugely exciting time. Well, this was probably when I was about 17. So on the one side, I'd have been dreaming about my sport on the other side sad to say I was dreaming about the girls school just down the road um, <laughs> but then the other preoccupation was I just love military love military uniforms and it was just Carnaby Street period and so we were all wearing military uniforms and I collected them and would go up to London and there Portobello Road I remember buying a Robin Hood rifles wonderful frock coat from an old colonel in Bath and it was just the most beautiful uniform, and I sold it to a guy in Portobello Road for a massive profit. So I didn't really want to sell it, but yes. I loved it so much. But equally, it was that thing of buying and selling something you love doing. Um, and then opposite there was a guy called Bob Pandy, who had this, this stall with uh, all these amazing fur coats, wolf coats, and so on, and along would come 
the Rolling Stones and all sorts of celebrities because he was the stand and, and I befriended him or he befriended me and he let me have a little tiny corner on his stand selling my military uniforms. Now, how did I get there? That meant sort of daylighting or moonlighting rather from school on occasion. So perhaps one Saturday a month I would skip out. Which led you on to um, founding Mulberry, which you started at a very young age. I couldn't quite believe this. In fact, you started the business with £500, which you were given as a 21st birthday present from your parents to invest in this company. Um, You founded the business with your mother, Joan, at the kitchen table. It would be an absolute honour if you could tell us this wonderful story, where the idea came from, what the business looked like in those early days, um, and also about your mother. Well, as I've just said, we, I'd already sort of transported myself to London and looking at it, I got a scholarship to do business studies at Westminster College in London. And if you like, I'd done my first objective, which was to get to London. But the second objective soon became clear, which is I wanted to be in the fashion industry. And this sounds dreadful to say, but being a boutique manager was akin to being a rock star in those days if you could get that job. So I suppose that was probably my fairly (laughs) low horizon but monumental in my eyes. And so suddenly the thought of under-manager in Surbiton by the age of 35 seemed horrific. So went to see a man called John Michael, who was the sort of Carnaby Street, Kings Road, Savile Row king. He had tailoring through to Guys and Dolls shops, the Westerner, Levi's and so on. I said, can I be your management trainee? And he said, what's that? And <laughs> he let me clean out the coffee cupboard and stationery cupboard and make the coffee and things. And then he gave me a job buying accessories in one of his boutiques called Guys and Dolls on Oxford Street. So here I was suddenly, probably at the age of 19, and he said, look, just buy from these people and sell these things. And I really hadn't a clue what I was doing. But I'd get hippies coming in off the streets with their belt ranger saying hey man you know buy my belts and I'd buy it for let's say two pounds and I'd sell it for six pounds I thought whoa this is incredible but he was very very I think my father had actually rung him up to be fair and said look my son's coming to you to you know look after him please and so dad in the background or mum in their own different ways were amazing my father particularly he was really astute you know, just incredible as a person in watching and seeing how he could help in any way without getting in the way. So um, I only learned that from John Michael later on. But I think he, John almost became a paternalistic figure and he would we'd go up to the Harrogate gift fair and we'd drive to the station in his Rolls Royce wow. and then get the first class, you know, so these were things I couldn't believe, up to <laughs> Harrogate and back. So a touch of that sort of stardust, thinking, wow, this is the possibility. And his offices in Savile Row were stupendous. And I graduated and I, I worked in the, in the menswear shops called John Michael and Kings Road and so on too. So I saw a complete cross-section of what was happening in fashion. And it was incredibly exciting. So when I finished my college, in fact, I didn't even finish my college. I just couldn't... St- I had to go and start Mulberry. So I'd had this idea and I went to my father and said dad where can I buy some leather and he said well go down to Bermondsey and that's where all the leather factors and wholesalers and tanners were in those days um, and I bought some amazing snakeskins, every color under the sun and thought I could make these into chokers and there was a whole fad then for velvet chokers with um, cameos on and leather chokers so I made snakeskin chokers with little butterflies on And that's where the kitchen table came in. And my girlfriend at the time, we were sewing away with an old singer sewing machine and we took them to places like Bieber and Bus Stop um, and sold them. And so suddenly, here I was making things. And again, Dad had been quietly orchestrated behind helping it happen. So when I got to 21, or before 21, um, I was thinking, this is going to be a career. This is going to be really exciting. So, you know... Dream, but not really probably fully understanding what on earth that meant. And went to my father and said, look, could you come into the business with me? This is fantastic. I think I could really make a go of this. And he said, well, look, I can't because that would be a conflict with Clarks. Why don't we make your mother a sleeping partner? I think a make your mother a sleeping partner was probably not the way to put it. But <laughs> she embraced the idea. And I think 
I think, I guess my father had always been thinking, look, this family's got to do a business. And I remember stories of a donkey farm and woodland and things which never fortunately came to fruition. So, was, so I don't so think his idea... there was something in the air, was there, always in the family? I think in his eyes there was. I'm not yeah. sure the rest of us fully understood yeah, it. but for him there, there was something Yeah, I think so. That. I think he had always worked for, well, army, big corporation clerks. So I created the dream that he would have loved to have had, had if you like. So, and he was always, he was never in the business, but he was always right behind it. You know, his experience in doing costings and return on capital, which even though I've been to business college, I didn't really fully understand, to get going. Yeah, those start-up yeah. days. It's yeah, just... and, you know, my mother was just sensational as a business partner. She enabled me effectively as a designer and as the marketeer and entrepreneur to go out and mm. be out and know that back at home our one sample stitcher or our two sample stitchers were there looking after it. Um, she was famous in the industry as we got more and more customers around the country for being so tight on you haven't paid, it's 30 days or we'll offer you 5% seven days. Imagine that 5% seven day payment now. <laughs> and so everybody would give us as their reference because they paid us but didn't pay anybody else, I suspect. And because we were belts, we weren't the biggest order in the world. So she got a great... So she really was a massive help and, and hugely respected as the administrator. She was almost... There were lots of words. She's a bit like the Queen. You know, there was a sort of correctness and but charm about her, which was... But also, a, she could cut through butter. So she really was a very together wow. lady. What a story. And tell me where the name originated from, because your logo has always been a classic mulberry tree. Can you tell us that story? Yes. Well, it, at the time, fashion was... We had come out of the 60s, you know, you were sort of Mary Quant time, um, Jean Muir at the top end... French and Italian was quality and Gucci's and, and so on. British was about real excitement. And, I don't know, for me, Roger Saul just didn't sound very exciting. Um, it's perhaps been a bit horrible to myself, but it didn't have that wonderful sort of Etienne Agner, Pierre Cardin, Yves Saint Laurent. And all of the belt makers, and it was belts we were really in them, which belts then were the handbag of today. Um, and these were their signatures on the back of the belt. So I was going into Europe seeing all these wonderful designers creating these amazing creations, which the British retailers, the boutiques and the department stores were buying. So that was my target, if you like. Could I get myself into that box? You know, you'd ring up buyers and you couldn't even get an appointment. You couldn't even get to see them. OK, well, where do you make your things? Because you could just about get a telephone call in. Um, Britain, England, Somerset. Sorry, bing. And I realised that, you know, that how do you make the sale from a very early age? It's no good having the best designs in the world or the best marketing campaign or whatever it is. If nobody's seeing it, it's a total waste of time or nobody's buying it. So you've got to get yourself in front of the buyer or in front of your customer. And we all forget that constantly through our lives. And you head back to, you know, you've got a production issue, you've got a design issue, you've got a finance issue... All of those things have to be secondary. Too often, with 90% of all of the people involved in business, they become primary. And they damp the whole thing down, and they effectively shut it down. Because if you aren't constantly out there doing it... Um, I went to... We had a meeting this morning about a new product range is just coming out, and we're a bit slow right now at being right at the front, and we've got the product, it's amazing, and we will sell it, and it is selling really well, but we haven't got out there yet. So how do you get out? And in today's interesting world, very different to that that we'll come on to, of where we used to do it with PR and magazines and so on. So, so you had to get you know, it out there. So really what I did, instead of Roger Saul, I thought, OK, well, I'm going to be British. I'm fed up with being told I cannot see you because you're British. So actually I'm going to make, and I know that British fashion is really exciting at the moment, I'm going to create a British name and... At school at Kingswood, we'd had a huge mulberry tree outside the front, and the Mulberry Harbour was invented there for at the end of the Second World War because the Admiralty occupied Kingswood. So this massive, great thing was all down the dining room wall. So you had to, so we lived with it, if you like, for, for 10 years. So I thought, mm, Mulberry, that's a good-sounding name. And Burberry in those days was a really old-fashioned, old fuddy-duddy brand. Um, sorry, Burberry, it isn't now. Um, really... There was nothing else British that was young and fashionable. So I thought if I could... And mulberry, it's a fruit, it's a tree, it's wood, it's 
got mm. lovely connotations. It's history. Yes. Um, so it had a lot of things. And then my sister was an artist and doing graphic design at the time. And so I said, Rose, could you design a tree for me? So I wanted something very modern. So she did a completely abstract tree, and that became our logo. But at that time, 71 through to 75, we had no aspirations to use our British heritage at all. Yes. You know, it was all about this season's collections, next season's, was it waist belts, hip belts, clutch bags? You know, what was it we were doing? And if you didn't change your whole character and persona every year, you were out. You know, the shops were only interested in the next latest trend. And you didn't have trend boards like you do today. You didn't have anything that gave you, okay, pink, yellow and blue and soft and shoulders. Or, you know, you had no, no guidance. The, the step then for me was going the next step. So I found friends and uh, there's a lovely Australian model girl who became our Australian agent called Nerida Piggin and she was one of the stars with Ford Models at the time and so she introduced me to Enrico Covery in Italy and other people in France and Kenzo and so I started designing belts for these guys so suddenly I was actually designing and seeing their collection being envisaged being built and understanding why they were doing it the materials they were using it meant that I knew before next Mm. season came up what was Christian Ojar doing? What was Victoire doing? What was Enrico Covery doing? These guys who were right at the top of their game. And I was designing their accessories for them. And I knew exactly what colour palettes they'd be using because I was buying the leather and designing it and so on. So by the time I arrived at, let's say, Pret-a-Porter to sell with my collection, I, was, I had every colour right. I had every shape right. By aligning yourselves with and bringing yourself to the marketplace in the right way and knowing... Not only what your competition is doing, but also what you know your your peer group are doing is essential. We're proud to partner with NatWest. They support small businesses in so many ways. Just one of these ways is through Backer Business. This programme will match fund up to a million pounds a year, creating hundreds of successful applicants when they crowdfund through Backer Business. Listen to the end of this podcast to find out more. With a continued commitment to small businesses, NatWest, in a world first, give away the rest of this ad break space to small businesses and independents. They truly believe in the power of small and want to give you the opportunity to showcase your business to hundreds and thousands of listeners. So without further ado, let me hand over to this week's NatWest Independent Ad Break winner. Hi, my name is Charlie and I'm the founder of Shorebox. Shorebox is a plastic-free discovery box that introduces you to eco-friendly products each month. So many of us are now aware of the impact of plastic pollution, but knowing how to cut down on plastic can feel totally overwhelming. Plastic is all around our homes, from our toothpaste to our kitchen sponges, and I remember having no idea what the alternatives were. It turns out that there are so many brilliant plastic-free products out there, and that's why I started Shorebox. Shorebox puts sustainable products on your radar, by sending you four carefully selected alternatives to plastic each month. Our subscribers have been able to cut down on plastic in so many different areas of their lives, including their toiletries, cleaning products, skincare and much, much more. We're on a mission to make sustainable living effortless, so more of us can feel empowered to reduce our impact on our planet. If you're ready to cut down on single-use plastic, find out more on our Instagram or website, shorebox.co.uk. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be listened to by thousands of people, take that leap of faith and send in your small business advert to independentadbreaks at holly.co. We're looking for the wonderful stories that only small businesses have and have created more information on exactly what we're looking for on our website, holly.co. You know, this time, so was this all in the 1970s? Was this the, sort of the, the point where it started happening? Yeah, so we really started in 71, and I suppose by 76, that was, that first five years was me, if you like, doing my apprenticeship. And I suppose 75, 76, I'd met Monty, my wife, and she was modelling um, in Paris, and... 
I'd just literally done a collection there based around hunting, shooting, fishing. And the reason I'd done it was because I'd been chasing her around the country. She was doing <laughs> modelling at agricultural shows, which sounds horrendous, but actually that's what the magazines did. They'd go off and do shows where you reached out to that market. Right. Um, so she'd be modelling, and I thought, OK, well, I'll drive up and hang around. And hanging around between shows, and there were this amazing saddlery, saddlebags, hunting bags, fishing bags. And everything I'd done up to them was soft and all belts in those days. And handbags didn't really exist. I know it sounds crazy. We did some canvas tote bags, but nothing else was really there. So we made a collection around hunting, shooting, fishing, and did, but then did a twist to it. So I did them in a softer structure. I used quilted canvas in the fishing bags. Um, I went to Kenzo and sold him the idea of a little shooting bag made out of quilted canvas in ten different colours. And then I designed a little jacket, which was a blouson with a, a zip on it. But it started as an army shirt, and all the army camps were selling their shirts off that they'd, yeah. oh they'd had for 20 years. Yes. And they were all different sizes, from gigantic to tiny. Um, and I used to buy them by the thousand. And I sold them all over the world, from Henry Bendel to Japan to wherever it was. And, and because we were buying them so cheaply and we were converting them, actually we were able to make a super profit as well as having a super idea. That doesn't come too often. Normally the super ideas you don't make much money on. Yes. But, you know, they, they yes. are the marketing bit. So that was, that was the first time I think I'd really consider myself to be a designer. And within five years, am I right in saying you made your first million well, I think because from the start I was travelling into Europe and I actually flew to Australia and then I flew to South Africa and did the same. And America, from the very beginning, they had what were called buying offices in the UK and they would come and buy British fashion. We were probably exporting up to 50% of everything we did right from the very beginning. In 1979, we had a turnover of, I think, one and a half million. We just won a Queen's Award for export. And we were selling maybe 70 or 80% to the States. It had got so big. And then we got this message back from the buying house, anything you deliver late this year is going to be cancelled because there's been this massive change in the pound dollar. So literally, the world collapsed. Our American market collapsed. It just was a horror story. You know, so these things were of worldwide proportions. And, but they were slow going through. So different people, we were the first to hit it. The rest hit it afterwards. The good news with that was... We had to cut the business to the quick and we had to understand how are we going to survive that sort of massive recession where pound dollar or pound euro as it was in French, Frank, German, whatever it was, how would you get through that? And so that was probably the first harsh lesson in business I had on a massive scale. Tough, tough, tough. But again, the way we came through that was go, well, do you remember that hunting, shooting, fishing collection? We've never, ever done better than that. Because we'd gone from that to being pink, blue, yellow, big shoulders, whatever it was. So coming back to that base and back to really saying, look, that is the essence of our brand. We, have to, get, we have to get beyond how successful the next or the last collection was. We've got to get to a place where people are going to buy us for who we are as a brand, not just how good the collection was. And this was a step we really made and started. We'd always had very cool exhibition stands at the shows we did around around the world by then we used gym bars we used um, pine coffee tables cut low we had directors chairs in white canvas and sort of cool cool we then turned that into a shop environment and we opened our first shop in Place Victoire in Paris it was half the size of this room tiny weenie but it was the time when we had just I'd done the Mulberry Filofax back in about 70 eight I think and it became a cult item and we had them stacked up in the parish shop literally in piles and people come in and buy them and and then we opened in Christmas Place in London <clears throat> and we went to Harrods and Liberties and Harvey Nicks and did our first little Mulberry concession so we were the first people to really take that concession, concession idea I and, did not turn, that. and we staffed it and we stocked it so before and you that you insisted on that yeah well, we just said look we can we can hold more stock than you can. You haven't got to take the burden of that stock value. We will yeah. do it. The one thing we hadn't realised was that actually if we did that, we had the cash flow problem with that. Yes. So <laughs> that knowledge came out. Another, another little business lesson that's yeah. coming through. Yeah, cash flow. Hmm. You continue to build your business over 30 years, becoming 
such a beloved and renowned brand. 30 years is a long lifespan in business, as we know. One year feels like a lifetime, doesn't it? Um, And you had many ups and downs within Mulberry. This luxury fashion is a notoriously difficult market. What were the key lessons that you think you learned? I mean, we've touched on a number of them, but that you could share with people today that would resonate with people. I think you've always got to be prepared to turn left when everybody else is turning right. You know, I th- can't think of the number of times when I would envisage a new product idea. The factory went, how on earth are we going to make We can't make that. And I'd have to then find the machines to make them, find the technology to make them, move them on. They wanted to stay where they were safe. We can do that really well. Why can't we carry on doing that? And it didn't matter whether it was the factory people or it was the sales team. Mm-hmm. We had one or two crises period where we had way oversold in Scandinavia and Germany And we were just sailing along with huge growth, but they were buying the same thing every year. And the salesmen were very happy taking their commission and so on. And then I remember we hit that Gulf War recession and you could see fashion was coming to a full stop. You know, it just, you you had 50-year-old fashion journalists wearing punk hairdos and pins through their nose or whatever it is, looking ridiculous. And it had become (laughs) ridiculous. And at that point, fashion ate itself, turned around and went, okay, where are we going now? And cocooning was the idea, which was nothing to do with fashion. It was where you hid from the world and went home to eat rather than eating out in restaurants. And out of that came interiors and home interiors. So I grasped Mulberry Home at that and invented Mulberry Home at that time. And we took over the whole top floor of Harvey Nichols, which they weren't using at the time, and made a Mulberry Home collection. And that was nothing to do with Mulberry, the brand you knew, but it was everything to do with a lifestyle brand, which we had created. But it was taking that big step. And how do you take the opportunity rather than the threat? You must really watch threat, but you've got to then try and change it into opportunity, because if you don't, you're history. Gosh. So Mulberry Home was, was a big one of change. Um, and we then launched Charlton House Hotel here. We got a Michelin star for it. And then I took the Mulberry Planner and said, okay, well, what's happening technology-wise? And we did the Mulberry Zion, the Mulberry Palm 5, and we took it to the city, and we suddenly sold loads of them, and we became a hot brand. We weren't hot with our handbags at that time. Um, So you really, so you took, I mean, were you one of the first brands to look then at, you know, technology coming forward and say, right, where's the case? Where's what you hold it in? What's this... It's so innovative. You took this crisis about to happen, cocooning, created interiors. It is the zig and the zag. It's, 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 you really did look at threat and twist it. I've just learned throughout my life that suddenly you're going to have a change and you've got to see that change coming. You've really got to imagine when it's going really well, something's going to go wrong soon and let's find where we're going to go next to come out of it. Um, after 30 years building Mulberry, there was a moment in 2000 that changed your life forever. You took on some new investment, which led you to leaving your beloved business. Would you be able to share that story and what happened? Bits of it, yeah. Um, as a business, as you grow, if you like, we'd gone through the 90s, accelerating as a business. We'd started to design as manufacturers. We had created the brand we had opened our own shops we then realized the only way to take that worldwide was to franchise so we'd set up a franchise operation become global in that sense and then i think realized as we went through the 90s that um we went on the stock market so 1996 we'd bought in venture capitalists in 1990 during that difficult gulf war period thinking we need to hit into america and we need to do mulberry home we will need capital to do this we don't have enough capital So we bought capital in, sold 25% of the shares. Venture capitalists were on a 30% internal rate of return, which means every year they got 30% interest. But it was rolling up, so we couldn't see that, so that wasn't a problem. We didn't quite understand it. Just a number on a book. Yeah. We were making big profits, so no problem. And then we realised we were going through, actually, that we were creating this massive debt that would mean we'd have to sell another chunk of the company to take them out. So our merchant banker said, well, look, the best thing to do is to go on the AIM stock market. Um, This is a new thing that's just starting in about 95, 96, and this could be perfect for you. So we followed their advice, and we had a most fantastical launch on the stock market. 
um, I remember Times, heading of the Times, Saul brings colour to the market. And we sold all the 25% that took them out. They made huge profits. We forgot, and nobody told us, and I didn't listen probably because we didn't want to sell shareholding. We were sort of, don't want to lose too much because otherwise we lose control. Um, we perhaps should have sold another 5% and bought in a chunk of money that we could use. We didn't. So we provided them with money. But and nice. then the next year, 96, in came Tony Blair, Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown gave control of sterling to the Bank of England on the basis of inflation. The pound shot up 30% in value. Now, we'd been used to 10, 20 each year going up and down, but 30% was massive. We were by now selling in local currency. So we'd sell in dollars in America, yen in Japan, euros in Europe. That meant that effectively we lost 30% of our revenue, not 5% or 10%. We went from making, I think, a million and a half to losing a million in a year, just mm. on currency. And it was horrendous. So through there, I then had to take the very tough decision of saying, OK, in fact, I don't think it was even my decision. We bought, we moved 50% of manufacturing overseas to Turkey, to China, to wherever we could. We did it in a year. So we, and oh we had to goodness. take our technical team out to Turkey, out to China. We had to take our leathers and our raw materials out to those countries. We knew how to make it, obviously, because we had our own factory. So we could do that. But it was a big job. But we brought ourselves back into profit within another year. So we had done the job. I don't think there's anything else we could have done at all through that period. And I think we did a great job in bringing it back under control. But it was doer. It was really, really tough. And as we came back into profit, our bankers, and they will remain nameless, said to us, well done, guys. Now we can see you're out of danger. They didn't quite say it like this. Now we can see that everything's looking better you need to bring in some more capital because, of course, you know, we can't just bank you without... So that they'd stayed in while it was terrible, knowing that, frankly, they had no choice. Now that we were back in shape, they could see we were undercapitalized, and they wanted some security by getting other people's money in to support them. Thank you, bankers. Um, so cynical me would say, well, they had no heart whatsoever. And is a banker supposed to have heart? Probably not. Um, but there was no support for the business that had proven yeah. that it could yeah. do and Incredible bring itself back. Things, you know. So the next step was to find capital. And we went out and we found a lady called Christine Ong. And she had Armani, Donna Karen, loads of big brands in Europe. And she had Armani in the States. And she had loads of big European brands in the Far East. So we thought this could be the perfect partnership. And we sold 40% of the company. We had more than that. We had about 45%. So we thought this will be, should be a good thing. And the extra deal we did was to say, we will do a joint venture in the States. And we will own 50% each. And she would put $15 million into that operation. And by now I was saying, look, we've survived all of this, we've come through it. What's the worst that can happen? Um, sadly, Christina made it clear within coming into the company that she wanted me out. So we then spent two years, without going into detail, having an interesting thing, and we tried to make it work in every way we could, but there was no question underneath it. Their objective was to take control and to see me out of the way. That transpired in the end. Um, we thought we'd done a super deal and survived it, but we didn't. And then it all collapsed, literally in a weekend. So we lost control of the company, um, and I was out, literally in, in a weekend. Um, that then was pretty dramatic for the family and for me. Uh, there was a, probably about a year where we tried to fight back, because I still owned... 45% of the company. And then the farm came up for sale around the house. And that was the first time for 100 years. The farmer just came round one morning and said, um, I'm putting the farm up for sale next week. Here are the particulars. <laughs> we had no money. So we thought, what the hell are we going to do? Because it had been the dream to own the whole thing. And uh, so we begged, steal, borrowed. We knew that he would know that we were the most likely to buy it, so he would 
get the best price from us. The threat was he's going to have a housing estate behind us, so yes. are we going to have to leave the house as well as not get the farm? So quite a tortuous process, and uh, we came through that, survived it, and actually found a way to buy the farm, borrowed the money to do it. But it was during that time that you know, I thought that I could win the battle, and I said, I'm going to fight. And something about me having the shareholding in different bits meant that when I went to the board meeting and said that, they just laughed. Uh, and I thought about went back, and I thought, do you know, there was something about that. Of course I can bring it all together and do that, but actually, what's more important? So I decided to buy the farm and sell the shareholding. And <clears throat> we accepted effectively what was... The price had been driven down in the previous year, so their objective was to get as low as possible. So it cost them the least money to get me out. So basically, we were on the floor, but it meant I had to go and sell my shareholding to all the top institutions... I can see it's a very painful story. What's so interesting, Roger, is on this podcast, how many founders I have spoken to who, you know, you never think in a million years, you know, it could ever happen. Um, happen to the founder, happen to the person that gives the birth, the parent of a business. And you have to do what you have to do, you know, to get through a business, raise the money, be able to create the dream that that business deserves. And it makes me incredibly angry how many people I've seen. And this story is heartbreaking because it's, um, it just shouldn't have happened. And it sounds like, though, in a way, that the universe also created an opportunity for you. It's exactly how bizarre that that farm had not been for sale for so long. But at the very moment you're on the floor... You know, there's something came along and said, you know what, I'm going to give you this. And you saw it like you always did, an opportunity. And, you know, we go on, you know, you rose from what must have been what you felt like the ashes. And the trust in people that you must have had around you, you know, diminishing. And I just, I'm, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. It's a... Listen, at the end of the day, um, I'm a great believer in things happen for a reason. And who better to sell your shares than you to somebody and say, these are going to be worth something because this lady is going to invest in this company. She didn't buy it not to invest in it. She bought it to take control, make it a world brand in her own right, but on her terms. So I, could, I'm, I was probably the only person that could have sold those shares which effectively was amazing for Mulberry because they suddenly got 10 institutions that had bought the shares and the shares multiplied in value thereafter. And I was out, and, but if you like, it was a massive relief through that process that at last this horror story for the previous years had, had uh, come to an end. But bad things happen sometimes. But if I really look back at it, I, those last few years of Mulberry, I was hurtling around the world I was probably pretty far away from creativity. I was opening shops. I was talking to the city, you know, negotiating, inverted commas, with our shareholders. Um, that was probably not really Roger. It probably wasn't what I was... I was good at it, but I, it wasn't the thing I really enjoyed. And I was repeating things. So I wasn't doing something that was totally different. I wasn't making change and I think Mulberry had got to the point I always remember we did the it bag so we had Luella Bartlett who was a young designer who was looking really hot and I brought her back here to see our museum of collection and she went back 75, 76, hunting, shooting, fishing you did this amazing big bag which is a giant it bag that, we've got to do that and Luella was doing a fashion show in New York with the Mulberry accessories and Giselle walked off the end of the catwalk clutching this bag, saying, I'm going to have this bag. Um, I must have it. And we had a photographer, Chris, I think it was Chris North, who was on the end of the catwalk. He took the photograph. It was in the Evening Standard and in Vogue, and that created the it bag. 
and that bag then ran in different forms for the next 10 years for Mulberry. So I have no regrets whatsoever other than lots of hard lessons and pain going through it that we lost Mulberry. I'm quite certain that we were at a level where we were heading into LVMH territory. You were never going to be able to own that baby at its next stage. Um, So proud that I've been given that opportunity. We've teamed up with our friends at Three and all year we'll be working together to make dreams come true. Share your dreams on social using hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer and who knows what will come true. With a Three Means business plan, I love that you can get up to £500 worth of benefits from their partners to help give your business a lift in those early days. Now over to a short story about those that dreamed big and flew. Dolly Parton had very humble roots, growing up as one of 12 living in Tennessee, in a one-room shack with no heating, no running water, but a wonderfully rural life. Although she started a singing career at the age of 10, she was told day after day that she wouldn't be taken seriously due to the way she dressed and presented herself. But working is what makes Dolly fulfilled. She says, I've dreamed myself into a corner, so I have to be responsible for those dreams. I have to be out there doing it. Sometimes I work too hard, but I wanted this. I've seen these dreams come true, and every time one dream comes true, you've got to support it. Remaining true to herself, Dolly went on to write countless hits and has sold more than 100 million records worldwide, incredibly writing her most famous songs, Jolene and I Will Always Love You, in one single afternoon. Don't forget to share your own business dream using hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer. To discover more about business plans, search Three Means Business. Now back to Conversations of Inspiration. And I'd love to talk about this next chapter, creating. Um, what? Who would have thought you would have gone from fashion to farm? For me, I'd grown up with my grandparents having a farm in Suffolk, so our summer holidays were over there and, you know, mucking out the pigs with Granny and being on the compines harvested with Uncle, you know, those were just magic moments. So that definitely was in my DNA. So when the farm came up for sale around, it was like children's toy box, you know, can I please do it? So we went organic immediately. My sister had cancer and was struggling with cancer, secondary cancer, and was looking at diet. So she came down and I said, I'm going to sow wheat. You know, that, I'm sure that's the thing to do because it's been a dairy farm and we'd listen to the milking machine at four o'clock in the morning forever and thought, don't want that anymore. Um, yes, we can get rid of that. So she said, well, why not grow spelt? And I'd never heard of it. Went on the internet. There was one page. There are now a million um, and just read the most incredible things. It's good for the mind, good for the body, good for the soul. Um, the Roman army used it as a marching bread. Um, it's high fibre, it's high protein, it's slow-release energy. And so wearing my shop, sorry, my Charlton House food hat, Michelin star, and, and having now moved into mm. saying, look, I've got to think of what the provenance of these animals are, what have they been fed, have chemicals gone into them? All of this was sort of, whoa, this is exciting. We just came in at a time when organic was just thrusting forward. The big supermarkets who saw the opportunity with organic and thought, great, we'll jump in on that. You've got suddenly huge aisles in Tesco's and Sainsbury's and everywhere where organic was the new whatever it was. Then we had the big banking recession, 2008, 2009, and suddenly it was, whoa, now it's price. Now we've really got to go back to price. That's the new in word and so organic was wiped out and we survived through that quite successfully but we didn't thrive and by now we were selling um, we had built our own flour mill so all my mulberry money that I'd managed to sell if you like went into the farm to reinvest and restore and and bring it up to purpose 
the harsh lesson is it does take time. If you're expanding a business, the cash flow goes back into it. It doesn't come out of it. Um, and it's only now, I would say, what are we, 2015 years later, that in a low-margin business called farming um, and food, we are now really flying. Um, and why are we flying now? Because the environment, vegetarian, vegan, health, spelt, provenance, where did it come from? British, vertical, we grow it. We've now got 10 farmers growing for us. It's our seed, we grow it, we plant it, we harvest it, it goes through our mill, it goes into products, multiple products, um, from pasta to cereal to bran flakes to porridge to bread. We found yeah. a way to go from big scale to it's just, you perfect. Do, it's, just, it's just incredible just watching you describe this. It's just, you've cre- you know, I think it's such a lesson that things take time. And now we've all caught up, in a way, and you've hit the moment. And tell me then, so we're sitting today um, in Kilver Court. It's completely stunning, absolutely unbelievable. I can't even describe, I'm going to share it on stories, the photographs of the garden that I'm looking at. You bought this as a place, as a headquarters for Mulberry, is that right? And so where did this idea then create, so you've got your farm and this is doing well, this destination, this shopping destination come from? Mulberry, as we were growing, we were desperately in need of a new headquarter building. I had this lovely dream of finding a manor house and building the factory off the back of it. In fact, I couldn't find a manor house and the field behind it. So we built the factory and we're going to recreate a manor house, which is quite a Pratt thing to do, really. (laughs) So we never did it. But we needed a headquarters building because we'd run out of space. So just looking around for a manor house, um, I drove past here one day and this extraordinary building which is probably five six hundred years old but really had seen the history of being a wool textile mill the river Sheppey, shepton mallet coming through so you've got this lovely history of serious industrial with amazing buildings that have got big wooden floorboards and structure and um and then after that a, a great um sort of paternalistic manufacturer called Ernest Jardine of the Jardine Matheson family had come down from Nottingham, again, lace-making. So around 1900, he came in, and he looked at the gardens and thought, this is an opportunity to create space for my workforce. It's not just mill space. I'm going to do a boating lake and a vegetable garden, Um, a bit like Fry's Chocolate and Cadbury's and Clark's Shoes had all done the same. Let's look after our workers for once rather than beat them up. So that had all happened, and then it had probably fallen into, I think it was called the wilderness there and after, as it had fallen into disrepair. And then the Showering family, who are ultra-famous in this part of the world for creating the baby sham drink in the 60s, and then they'd wiped out all the cottages around, built gigantic factories in every direction, and this had been their headquarters. And they then created this staggering garden out behind us here, with this immense viaduct, railway viaduct, that sits as the most gigantic sculpture at the back of it. So the garden, if you like, is a passion, and it's a backdrop, and it's here. And because it's behind these amazing textile mills, nobody really knows it's here. So I think always with design, you want surprise. You, as a designer and a creator of, of products or brands or whatever it is, you want to feel safety on the one side and continuity, that it's what you know. But also behind it, you've got to be challenged because you can very quickly become boring. So... You've got this garden behind here that surprises you. But the bigger thing here was we were taking this gigantic mill that I bought as offices for Mulberry in 96. And we were saying, here we come, 2003, four. I came out of Mulberry. I actually walked away from here. I didn't come near it because of all the history. But I still owned it, and I was still getting a peppercorn rent for it from Mulberry. And I thought, do you know, I should be able to do better than that. Um, why don't I suggest to Mulberry they leave the offices stay in the factory shop, and we will repurpose it. And we'd looked at, when I'd had a dance with how I was going to get my next capital injection for Mulberry, we'd actually had a dance with Elvia Mash, as well as Christina Ong. And when we had that conversation, we were looking at the buildings, and I said, well, look, you know, what about a designer village? We could do that. We then raced on and other things happened. But Freddie, my son, 
came and joined me here and we looked at shaking those ideas down. And we started by thinking, well, the Mulberry factory shop just up the road, we've created an amazing beast there that, when I left Mulberry, had turned over three and a half million pounds in the middle of nowhere. Could we not persuade some people to come down the hill a hundred yards and come into the great house, the old manor house, and actually buy local seasonal organic food? And could we open the gardens to the public for the first time? Then a year later, we shook down the idea of, okay, well, what about doing Designer Outlet Village? And I went back to some of my old mates of Joseph, Margaret Howell, and so on, and said, look, you know the success of the Mulberry Factory Shop. It's legendary. Could we do something with you where we bring your product in and we'll create a multi-brand shop with sort of concessions a bit like Selfridges or whatever? And, you know, we've got the audience here, and it's no competition. Bristol and Bath, they're not great designer yes. towns or cities. Um, Southwest, you've got nothing else, so might it work? And they said, yeah, yeah, we'd love to give it a go. And it was a huge takeoff, and we were on BBC News when we opened, and it was that lovely conversation on the news saying, look, Mr Baker, what do you feel about Roger Saul opening a shop on the edge of town? You know, what about the retail centre? He's one of four shops closed up and down the high street. And Mr Baker said, well, good luck to him, you know, um, at the end of the day, he's no competition to me and he's going to bring more people in. Hopefully they'll come and find me. Now, as for Tesco's at the top of the high street, why did they do that? So there was a lovely story coming out. Yes. And so we grew and we grew very quickly. And people like Peter Williams of Jack Wills saw it and went, oh, this is amazing. I've got to open a shop here. And we quickly got brands like Toast and so on to come in. And so by 2011 we had created the nucleus of what might be a new form of designer outlet village with some full price, so food and other things, and could that be the new recipe of repurposing old buildings and turning them mm. into a wonderful environment with a garden, with restaurants, with your favourite brands, in a lovely setting. And now, if you look, we're now doing full price as well. If you're a customer, you're coming to find your favourite brand, you haven't got to go to Bond Street. You could buy it then and there, or you could have it delivered to you the next day if pink isn't here and you want pink. I'm sure we can mm -hmm. provide that to you online. And to me, it's about finding somewhere that you really enjoy, that you constantly feel there's some challenging happen, happening mm -hmm. for you, so that, you know, this brand of Kilver Court, there's always going to be a new brand. If you've not come for a month, there'll be another new brand here that might excite you. And everything is constantly moving, but you've got the security of your favourite brands. You can now also buy full price. So, so that's what we've tried to create. As we go on, I think we will find that we will move. You know, we're playing with yeah, serviced offices, and you know, what else can we do here? Can we create workspace things? Could we have somewhere where hairdressers and beauticians and on could have a space where they could come in, but they're not necessarily here all the time? But we will keep trying to test the edges of what. A consumer would like to find here whilst giving the security of knowing things you enjoy and the brands you like. It doesn't really feel like you're um, slowing down anytime soon. Um, is that right in saying that? Are you, have you got... It does appear to be, doesn't it? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Don't think you're... Yes, I don't think retirement's... But I'm very lucky. Around me I have the most fantastical family. You know, my wife Monty has been totally responsible for holding the family together as I've charged around the world and done things. Um, equally, three sons who've been amazing. So, Oh, my goodness. Full circle to the beginning of this story with your mum and your dad. Thank you, Roger. I could talk to you all day, and I cannot thank you enough for your time. I use the analogy that building a business is like being on an epic roller coaster. Can you tell me um, a low on this journey? Well, clearly coming out of Marlborough was a shattering low. But I think, you know, my analogy of, of what I do is you, you're a bit like a submarine that's got its periscope up, so you're always aware of what's happening or you stick it up when you need to. And then you've got to react to what you see. And you just very occasionally come up for air. <laughs> but most of the time you're underwater. So... If you are creating a business, you have to expect, be it investment costs, cash flow, whatever, you're going to be underwater for a lot of time 
You might not be able to take any money out. You might not be able to earn money. But there will be times when you're going to earn an awful lot of money if you do it well. Stay in there, but you've got to plan. You've really got to plan and think ahead. And tell me about the other side, the greatest high. Um, I think probably winning the Porto Grand Prix in my historic racing car. Wow. Because that was just a dream of mine because I always wanted to be a racing driver. But there are many others, obviously, of of, um, teams and succeeding in doing things. But uh, that would be the one. And someone, Roger, that you would um, think that I should interview, someone that has inspired you? They're probably not alive today. I don't know. But Basile was a menswear designer in, in Italy who was my star if I looked at. Um, he had the most amazing eye for tailoring and style and colour and design and shape. Somebody like Patrick Holden, uh, thinking too far out all the time, but just completely got everything that's going on in this environment we're in today. He was so far ahead and so far-reaching, and he's still very much alive. <laughs> Uh, it's just been a privilege to talk to you today. Um, you are, you know, a living legend. You've you've inspired so many of us. And from anything from the moments that we had where you've sort of been with us on our milestones of our lives, where we've been able to buy into a brand that we just adored, to now talking to you about how you're not stopping. You're taking things and making them Rogers in your own way. It's just been a real privilege and I feel, um, yes, quite emotional about even sitting with you. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's that time of um, our podcast where I've asked you if you would um, write a letter to your younger self. And this is the time where I'll hand over, hand over to you. Well, firstly, thank you. It's been a pleasure meeting you and, and talking and um, sometimes emotional talking about some of the things. You never quite know when emotion appears. Um, normally I think I'm totally in control, but there's definitely a moment there where you pricked a certain bubble somewhere. So I thought about this and thought, hmm. So I said, hello, Roger. Well, this is weird, isn't it? How do you feel about getting a letter from the future? Quite as excited, I suspect, as I know you often dreamed about time travelling to different ages. But that was generally always the past. So what can I say? You have set me up to have the most amazing life and I would have had nothing different. I say you. In reality, we both must say a huge thank you to Maren Parr who gave us such amazing support and opportunity in everything we've done. They also forced us to stand on our own two feet. Getting a bus to school at five, going to boarding school at 11, all seemed harsh and daunting and frightening at the time, but in reality prepared us for life. I congratulate you on your sporting achievements. Somerset 400-metre champion, captain of athletics, playing for Bath under-19s rugby. Your academic achievements leave something to be desired, as your reports demonstrate. But you and I both know the problem is that you just love daydreaming, be it about sport or girls, and find it terribly hard to get round to doing your prep. Nothing's changed there. In reality, it doesn't seem to have done me any harm, and something must have stuck. However, could you please bear to stick at chemistry and physics as I really struggle when trying to analyse my soil samples on the farm? I know it seems like gobbledygook, but there you go. A bit of the French, Latin and German did get home and have been incredibly helpful as I've traded around the world and helped me learn Italian, French and German. You could have done some Spanish, though. Your love of speed... That dream of being a racing driver and those handbrake turns in Mars Triumph Herald certainly set the tone for my lifelong motor racing amateur career. Don't stop dreaming as that becomes the art of the possible. See you later. Thank you, Roger. Thank you very much. And dreaming is certainly um, something that's vital for anyone who is starting a business or growing a business we've got to never stop dreaming and you certainly haven't and I'm literally sitting in the embodiment of your new dream and it's um, just been a wonderful afternoon thank you thank you thank you
before you go, here's a little more about Backer Business. Last year, NatWest's CEO, Alison Rose, wrote the Rose Review and discovered that if women launched and scaled businesses at the same rate as men, it would represent an untapped £250 billion opportunity for the UK economy. Isn't that unbelievable? So they created Backer Business, managed by Crowdfunder. This programme will match fund up to a million pounds a year, creating hundreds of successful applicants when they crowdfund through Backer Business. To find out more information, search NatWest Backer Business. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, if it has helped you along your own journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing this episode and podcast? Your support means the world and it really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown You will find that all the things that I have said Will come to when you are lying in your bed And if you want your friends to come